Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. I'm Nigel. This is episode 19, Feet of Clay. It is probably my third favorite watch book. I, I, mean, I mean, I know it's in the top three. I'm just going to have to reread the other two before I decide what order I think they go in. So I'm very excited to talk to you about it. So what are the other ones? I know... Is one called, like, Nightwatch? I just want to know the names of the other ones. Oh, so the next one is Jingo, and then The Fifth Elephant, ah. Nightwatch, Thud... And Snuff. Those are the ones that are left in the Night Watch. Or the City Watch, I I should say. Yeah, but before we get into that, really quickly, an important Twitter announcement. Did you see what our friend Lozzie tagged us in on Twitter? For those of you who are listening, our friend Lozzie tagged us in a tweet, or a retweet, I should say, from at Burnham Woodprint. And they made a needle-felted librarian with tiny books, and it's so cute! I want one. I don't know how to needle-felt, or I would make you one. Maybe I could crochet you one. I'm going to look into that. How to crochet a small orangutan. An orangutan. (laughs) It is so, so cute. I am going to retweet that onto the nanny Ogs book club twitter i want to see all of the terry pratchett art like if you're listening and you either make terry pratchett art or you know somebody that does like tweet it at us at nanny's book club i want to see it all of it i also would like to see it yeah we'll talk about it on the show we will exclaim how cute it is it's great but back to feet of clay So, uh, Feet of Clay, like I mentioned, is the 19th novel in the Discworld series. It's the third City Watch novel. It was published in 1998. We are starting to get to the end of the 90s. There are no adaptations of Feet of Clay, sadly. I feel like it would be really fun to see an adaptation of this. This would be so cool. But it was extremely well-received at the time. Um, A lot of people commended Pratchett for writing something that they thought of as a very good novel, not just a good fantasy novel or a good humorous novel. And that doesn't mean that the others aren't good novels. It just means that this one really made a lot of people excited about the plot and the way that the characters develop and not just the world building, which is the focus of a lot of his books. So like a lot of reviews focused on the fact that this novel is extremely well contained while still growing these characters that we had seen for a while. Like, it's interesting that they say it about this now, because, like, a lot of the Discworld books, the editions that are printed, they're, like, I don't know, whatever book, like, let's say Equal Rights or whatever, and some of the, like, a lot of the ones I've seen will say, like, from the author of Snuff, and there was a Reddit post Mm -hmm. on on that, and it's like, why do they all say from the author of Snuff? And it's like, well, because that was an incredibly well-received book, and it won an awful lot of awards for being, like, a good novel, and I think that's it's interesting that like both of them that have done this have been watch books. I think there is a conversation to be had about how the watch is perhaps a more literary 
strain of the Discworld. I mean, I hate to say that because I don't really like that distinction and I love genre literature and I think it can be just as literary as anything else. But the watch books do tend to be more celebrated, I think, in terms of the quality of novelization. Hmm. But quick summary before we get into it. The watch is growing and with that comes new crimes in the city of Ankh-Morpork. The patrician is being poisoned and no one can figure out how. Someone is killing old religious men and the city's golems are somehow involved. Plus, Nobby is the Earl of Ankh. It's up to Vimes and Carrot to once again solve the case. My first thoughts is my association with Feet of Clay has always been a series of unfortunate events. Yes. Because of Ishmael in the last book who has both literal and figurative Feet of Clay. And I enjoy this one. I I enjoy this, like, having both, like, figurative and literal Feet of Clay in, like, in this actual book. The one that's called Feet of Clay and not The End by Lemony Snicket. So that was my first thing going in. So that was just, like, that's a nice little um, shout out to the early days of the podcast when I would not shut up about a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> For our listeners, do you want to explain what the metaphor Feet of Clay is or the saying feet of clay is how does one describe feet of clay because i understand what it means but can i like convey that feet of clay is like like deceptive being deceptive and like given the lie to appearances no it's also like a fatal flaw of some kind like the idea that like because it's based on like the statue from the bible that has like the gold head and i don't remember the exact order of the metals but the feet are clay and so the idea is that oh the old man of crete right it can't stand for very long because like even though the top is really well built the bottom is like this flaw that'll crumble right and this book i think is like you said it has literal feet of clay with the golems but it's also about flaws it's about like those weaknesses in these different characters and how they're sort of struggling to recognize them and to maybe not overcome them, although some of them do get overcome in this book, but to deal with them, to to understand them. Would you say that's accurate? I think so, yeah. I mean, because the whole series, the whole watch series, the watch series as a whole, is about kind of like, coming to terms with uh like inherent uh, or like societally held prejudices uh, and this is something that we talked about in i think specifically men at arms because the conversation was around like gun safety and the use of firearms and specifically in a police context where it was kind of like is the show copaganda or is um is the watch cop copaganda and I don't know, I think I kind of came away with like, no, not really, because it's actively trying to show a way that like a police force can be like for the people in a way that Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for example, wasn't really doing. Well, and it gets to do that because it's in a fantasy, so it can kind of make up its own rules of engagement, whereas... You know, you can have a police force in fantasy that's not rooted in white supremacy, whereas our actual police forces are rooted in white supremacy. Like, you can't just erase that history the way that Terry Pratchett can. It's really funny. My friend Chris worked in, like, the Liberty Center in Philadelphia. 
and he was doing like tours and stuff and he had to like come up with tour programs and it was like four police people coming in and they really did not want to hear about the racist uh, history of the police as an institution let me tell you oh <laughs> yeah no that that completely makes sense to me that that it would be difficult i know that like oh, that's the problem with a lot of like plantations as well like when they do the tours of like the slave mm. quarters there's a lot of people who don't want to hear that they don't want to hear about that those beautiful places were supported by slaves they were built by slaves and that slaves were horribly mistreated so it's yeah yeah. i think it's really interesting as well and just just like a book recommendation um that i i recently finished the love songs of w.e.b dubois by Mm. honore fanon jeffers it's so fantastic it's like a history it's kind of like what roots did but it's like just a behemoth and obviously like go it's goes only as far as the like 80s and 90s because that's when it's uh set but it's really really interesting and it's kind of what the uh underground railroad by colson whitehead did it's really good i'd recommend i just finished it i got it from the library uh like last week i haven't read it but it's been on my list so i I, maybe that'll be a monkey for me that would be quite excellent Mm. the one thing that i did want to say was um that like this book really puts that into um puts it into perspective that like confronting prejudices and stuff with like I mean we kind of saw that with the induction of dwarves and trolls into the watch uh you know like during what's basically the siege of Ankh-Morpork. pork but now we have it with recognizing golems as people and also like the watch in general people's attitudes to cherry like in the book I think that's I think that's really affirming because like i watched a video essay about it's called something like hijacking the dead terry pratchett and the trans debate Mm. where it went into like the history of people saying that like transphobes trying to co-opt terry pratchett's work and then they kind of had to back down because like you know people like neil gaiman and rihanna pratchett were like um you know this is not what terry was like at all Uh, and so they kind of had to back down but recently i saw on Rihanna Pratchett's Twitter that like transphobes are stro- still trying to do that shit, and she had said that like a lot of trans people find comfort in Cherry's storyline, and I didn't know it was in this book. Yeah. So like this was a really pleasant surprise, and like it's dealt with with such like well that's just the way it is. Like what's that? Oh, it's lipstick. Angua gave it to me, and it's like oh okay. Let's talk about Cherry because I do. Really, I was really excited for this book because I really wanted to know what you thought of her as a character. Like you said, a lot of people read her as trans and a lot of people find this storyline to be, like you said, really, really affirming. I mean, one of the things that they like that I really appreciated and like, I mean, I know it's kind of like basic, but an awful lot of authors, (laughs) J.K. Rowling, wouldn't even go to this kind of effort if they did something like this, because like. Like you said, a lot of people read Cherry as trans, but it's never like fully, it's never like fully officially word of God said that Cherry is trans. So there's always that like, you know, people could make the the argument that it's like, well, she's not, it's not said she's trans, but like the narrative like moves and refers to her exclusively in the feminine, um, which I appreciate where it's like, well, this is who she is and she's realized her gender identity. Well, and Angua corrects Carrot when Carrot refers to Cherry as he, 
she says no. Yeah. She, we have extra pronouns here in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. I think it's really interesting that in 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 a fantasy context when there's like you know when there's so many like different uh races and there's like you know fantastical creatures where you can still ground it in like you know something like this is the trans issue because like i'm reading volume four of the stormlight archives at the minute which is a new experience for me i haven't read it before but there's this race called uh well they were known as the parshendi or the parshmen and that's not the name they refer to themselves as they call themselves the singers uh, and then in this book, people like refer to them still as Parshendi and they go like, no, they're called the singers. That's what they call themselves. And there's even like a moment where um, one of the characters is like, well, no, I I have to call them the singers in my head too, because that way then it'll be like a natural thing to refer to them as the singers when I talk. And like, this is a thing that fa- like in the same way that you can have a police force that's divorced from you know, the roots of white supremacy and racism. You can have, like, you know, you can have a fantasy where we can have just, like, a trans character, and you can actually educate people, you know? As far as I know, Cherry doesn't get, like, too many death threats in this book. (laughs) I I do love the scene, actually, between Angua and Carrot, which Carrot, by the way... does have to have a conversation with Carrot, but by the end of the book, Carrot is, like, on board. Like, is referring to Cherry Mm. with the correct pronouns, calls her Corporal Miss Little Bottom, which I I thought was a really fun, like, moment. But I do love the scene where Angua is basically lecturing Carrot about his prejudices, right? Which is a theme in this book, and I want to talk about Mm. the other prejudices in this book. You know, she says... Carrot, I think you've got something wrong with your head, said Angua. What? I think you may have got it stuck up your bum. I mean, good grief, a bit of makeup and a dress and you're acting as though she'd become Miss Va-Va-Voom and started dancing on tables down at the skunk club. Anyway, if people can't be themselves in Ankh-Morpork, where can they be? And I, I think that that's just like, I think that is the response, right? To someone who is maybe not being openly hostile, but is sort of hiding behind their cultural understandings of gender and like purposefully like not understanding it in the way that carrot is kind of purposefully not understanding it to be like no like that is not you're you're acting as if this is like the worst thing in the world which i mean sex work's not the worst thing in the world but that's a different conversation but like you know it you don't have Mm. to be like that you can just accept it for the way that it is and and what's interesting too is that Vimes accepts it accepts it too. Like Vimes is just like, are you wearing lipstick? And then she's like, yeah. And he's like, all right. Yeah, he's like, anyway, back to back to the arsenic. And as a character, I think she's interesting because yeah, she does kind of work as a trans me- metaphor, but she's also an interesting character. She's the yeah. the CSI department of the Watch, and she's sort of making it up as she goes along. Yeah, which is really interesting because, like, all of the Discworld books have kind of, like, a pun in the title that gives, you know, like, like equal rights is, you know, magic right, and it's also equal rights, and, you know, like, things like that. I mean, it's, like, Men at Arms is about guns, which really makes me think wonder what snuff is about. I... <laughs> I think that scene is really great. I mean, it's horrible that the two, the first two dwarves are transphobic to her when they see her behind the desk. And then the third one is like hitting on her, which is weird. But I guess that's also 
something that happens to a lot of trans people is that suddenly people find them mm. attractive and there's chasers and all of that kind of thing. But I love the interaction at the end of that scene with the last dwarf who is like, can I borrow some lipstick? Like, I love that, like, Cherry, like... It's so precious. I know. She's, like, inspiring. She's cracking eggs. Like, it's it's wonderful. That was very joyous. Um, and it's also, it's also, like, really, really strange. Like, the carrot, first of all, holds this weird prejudice. Like, it really puts it into perspective how ridiculous it is to hold these kind of prejudices on their own especially because like he's in a relationship with a werewolf who is also a woman who performs femininity yeah she's a woman who performs femininity but she's also like a werewolf and she takes no shit and he thinks that like this is completely fine within society but like at the start a trans character is a bridge too far for him like, I'm glad that Carrot came around to it, and I kind of was never in any doubt that Carrot wouldn't. Because he's too nice. And he cares about people, I think. Yeah, but then also, like, the weird, th- that weird scene where they're like, I could see your ankles, and it's like, well, everyone has ankles. Like, yeah. <laughs> if this were a man, and you could see his ankles, like, what would be the problem? There's nothing scandalous about ankles. And I think the other thing I love about Cherry, too, is that she performs femininity, but she still she does it in her own way. And she does it in a way that's very dwarvish. Like she refuses to shave her beard because she's a dwarf like dwarves have beards and she welds on the high heels to her iron boots. But she's still wearing iron boots and she still has, you know, the helmet. And, you know, that's that's how she performs her culture. Honestly, the welding high heels on that was I really liked that. That was such a nice detail. I was like, you know, not shaving off your beard because it's a dwarvish custom. I was like, okay, but I don't know, like, the welding on of heels to iron boots. I I was like, this is incredible. She's amazing. I I love her so much. And I I mean, we've talked before about how, like, the whole dwarves hiding their gender thing is kind of a dig at J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the person who originally came up with this idea. And this feels like the perfect, not not just like a good trans metaphor, but it also feels like kind of a swipe at Tolkien, right? Like, oh, like, really? You think that all dwarves would perform gender the same way? That's kind of silly, right? <laughs> like, that, you know, that yeah. they would, that gender would have to be performed. And I do love that Cherry is like, like, she gets it in a nutshell where she says, yeah, I, I can do everything the men can do as long as I only do the things that men can do. And I think that that's, like, the perfect encapsulation of gender essentialism. I'm trying to think now of, like, any other really, like, fantasy settings that it, it could be. Just, like, in because in ter- Tolkien is such, like, a large figurehead. And I think, like, a lot of gender essentialism and sexism and racism is kind of ingrained in classic fantasy, but I don't know enough about it. So there probably is other stuff. I mean, can you think of another series with female dwarves that perform femininity in this way? Like, I can't. I'm sure there is, because there's so much fantasy. Because of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and just, like, mythology, I guess, most dwarves are coded as male in fantasy, and people don't question that a lot. Yeah, because they work in the mines and they do shit, which is associated with, like, male roles in society. You can't see with the right. massive air quotes. My hands are, like, way out because I need massive air quotes for that. 
Yeah. So from a fantasy perspective, this feels groundbreaking as well. And because as well, like elves are kind elves are always the one that like are leveled with being sort of feminine because they're always so graceful and beautiful. And also they're the ones that like, yeah. And they're always the, the, like out of the traditional fantasy races, the ones that you like get bog standard prepackaged from Tolkien. Elves are always the ones that you see a lot of like queer coding or like Mm -hmm. people reading that they're queer into um, because of that kind of thing. Uh, and it's never dwarves. Ne- dwarves never really get any kind of queer storyline until now, from like what I've read. And listeners, if you do know of any books that have female dwarves or queer dwarves, I would love to hear your recommendations because I honestly, this is the only one I know. I would love to read them. I'm devouring. Yeah, I'm devouring fantasy books at an alarming rate. <laughs> um. So if you know any, please let us know. I'm sure we'll come back to to Cherry as well throughout this, but I do want to talk about some of the other prejudices that we have, because that is a theme throughout this book, that the feet of clay seems to be prejudice. And, you know, these these things with distrusting other people and distrusting other races, we get a lot of speciesism. We get Vimes has obviously his continuing problem with speciesism that he has to confront. Um, which it, honestly, what's funny is that classism is what causes him to confront his speciesism because he meets the uh, the slumlord industrialist who's like underpaying his workers and making them work in like these terrible conditions. And he's like, if that guy hates other species, then I want all the species on the watch. Go hire some zombies. But also when he when he goes to meet Dragon King of Arms, which like. Just, side note, fucking incredible name. Dragon King of Arms. Sounds like a Dark Souls boss. Uh, he's got one too many. A limb. Yeah, exactly. I think I fought that guy in Elden Ring. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, when he goes there, he's like... He hears him and he's going, Ah, 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 in the darkness. And he's like, oh god, you're a vampire, aren't you? Ah. Oh. Yeah, he's still got his vampire thing, which is a continuing... That's a continually evolving storyline. So he hasn't quite gotten rid of that prejudice, but... At this stage, I'm worrying that there's, like, some sort of trauma that happened to Vimes in the past that was, like, done by vampires. But also, in terms of theories, this book is really laying it out for my Vimes time travels thing. Like, like, Dragon King of Arms basically says it, where he keeps going, like, you, oh, your ancestor. Like, I don't think I'm making this up anymore. So that is the other thing is that this was hinted at in Men at Arms that Vimes has what that Vimes's ancestor, Stoneface Vimes, is the one who killed the last king of Ankh-Morpork. It is confirmed in this book. And a lot of Vimes's identity crisis in this book revolves around Stoneface and that legacy of killing that king and just kind of kings in general. Stoneface, yeah. First of all, is that, like, the name reminds me of, like, I don't know, Stonewall Jackson from the Civil War, but also, isn't there, like, someone called Old Ironsides in English? Like, history? I'm gonna Google that real quick. Yeah, but, like, I thought that was really interesting because it goes it goes back to stuff that, like, really started when we were reading Weird Sisters, where it was, like, the disease that is wearing a crown, where it's, like, a king... 
like a crown isn't like a watch hat even when you take it off you're still wearing it and then that's echoed at the end where a watch hat isn't it isn't like a crown even when you take it off you're still wearing it mm-hmm. but like it gets into a lot of really really interesting debates where they're like well he was a tyrant yeah but you still killed a king or he's a king first in the social order regicide it's not even like it was a habit yeah he did <laughs> like, he did it once like he killed more than the one <laughs> yeah and i think it's interesting that vimes was like it wasn't even a murder because you can't murder an animal, basically. Oh, like yeah. when they found out what he was doing, like in his dungeons. Yeah, and if, so Vimes is very anti monarchy. In fact, at one point he says that it's, let me see if I could find it. Whoever had created humanity had left in a major design flaw. It was a tendency to bend at the knees. This idea that like people want monarchy, like there's something about monarchy that people really find fascinating. And Vimes sees it as a major flaw he sees it as a problem that people want someone to tell them what to do Mm. he's okay with veterinary doing it because veterinary is honest about who he is but yeah he doesn't want anybody else to and he doesn't want it to be a king yeah and especially because like this seems to be like the darkest thing in the disc world where they won't even reference what is like what happened in the last king's dungeon you know, where like they kind of hinted it was something to do with like children in Men at Arms, where he, I don't know, it mm. seemed like he was just torturing children or something. But like the fact that this is something which is so morally indefensible, even in a city that's like built upon corruption and also loam, um, as Ankh Morpork. And also, and loam. also loam. Black loam, yes. as we're told in this I'm book. so glad. I've been waiting 19 books, frothing at the mouth to find out what t- sort of loam specifically Ankh Morpork is built on. But, yeah, like <laughs> I'm an Ankh Morpork uh, loam foundation truther. Top Google search results. Uh, the USS Constitution was also known as Old Ironsides. However, there was a person who was known as Old Ironsides and it was Oliver Cromwell. Ah, who did kill a king? Yes, he did, and the Irish have special... We have special dispensation to hate him. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that that there's those, some of those parallels being made here as well. I think it's fascinating that Bimes hates the monarchy so much. Like, not just the last king, but, like, the entire institution, and that's something that's in this book. But... He also, he seems okay, not okay, he tolerates patricians, which I wanted to ask you about because setting aside veterinary Mm. for the moment, this book also tells us that there have been some really terrible patricians, like Lord Snapcase gets mentioned a few times. This is a name that's going to come up later as well. It was mentioned before as well, right? Right, as somebody who was insane, who also tortured people, who, you know, had, like, did some Roman emperor stuff with, like, a horse, making a horse a senator or a cabinet member or whatever. Oh, yeah, Caligula. Yeah. Yeah, and so my question for you is, why does Vime see a difference between monarchs and patricians, and does it have to do with veterinary? I think so. One of the things that I really wanted to talk about this book is the relationship between Veninari and Vimes. Because, like, 
it's kind of when you're introduced to the pair of them because i know veterinary appears in color of magic but when you're introduced to like vimes and veterinary as a couple in um the first watch book there it's very much like they seem at odds but then they have this really weird thing where every single book it's like veterinary feels the need to hint something to vimes but he can't tell it to him directly you know where he talks about like where he has the wicks in his hand and he's like god if you don't figure this out soon vimes i'm gonna have to start like writing it down and being more obvious <laughs> yeah i love the thing drumnot says to him at the end where he's like it occurs to me that if commander vimes didn't exist you would have to invent him and he says yes i very much think i did not i not i would have or like you know I would have needed to. He did. He feels like he created Vimes. And it's... In, yeah. Because one of the things that, like, I really, really came back to was the fact that, like, this... Like, the creating of a golem and the, like, arsenic and stuff, um, like, is bad, yeah, because a bunch of old men got killed. But, like, what they were doing was kind of, like, abhorrent... You know, like, socially, especially, like, with the golems, where they're, you know, clay of my clay, which I really want to get into, but, um... Hold on now, I'm just getting the quote. Yeah, where he's talking to Mr. Carey. Where he's talking, like, you know, what it really comes down to is... Like, innocent people needlessly died. Yes. Two children and an old woman. And Mr. Carey says, were they important, said Carey. Uh, or Carrot says to him, but Carrot nodded to himself. I was almost feeling sorry for you, he said. Right up to that point, you're a lucky man, Mr. Carry. Hold on now. This, like, I, I felt the need to ground it in this, where, like, Carrot says to Vimes, you know, the, the whole thing they say slightly before this is Carrot knows everyone in Ankh Pork. Uh, and then when he's mm -hmm. talking about, when he's talking about Mildred, uh, he says, "You know her," uh, and he. And the carrot says, "Can't say that I ha can't say that I have met her. Uh, what did she used to do? Do nothing, I suppose. She just brought up nine kids in a couple of rooms you couldn't stretch out in, and she sewed shirts for tuppence an hour every hour the bloody god sent. And all she did was work and keep herself to herself. And she is dead, Captain. And so is her grandson, aged fourteen months, because her granddaughter took them took them some grub from the palace, a bit of, of a treat for them. And you know what?" Mildred thought I was going to arrest her for theft. At the damn funeral, for God's sake. Vimes's fists open and closed, his knuckles showing white. It's murder now, not assassination, not politics. It's murder, because we're not asking the right damn questions. Vimes is really, really pissed off by Mrs. Easy's death and the death of her grandson. Yeah. And it is interesting that for him, even though obviously he is trying to do his job in terms of veterinary and he's trying to do his job to solve the murders of these crimes that those people who are, were in his neighborhood, the neighborhood he grew up in, which we get a little bit more backstory on Vimes in this book, a little mm. bit more about how he grew up, which makes total sense to me. That affects him in a way that none of nothing else does. This idea that like this is murder, like these people were innocent bystanders, which is an unusual thing in Ankhmore Pork. Sam Vimes would put down a hundred like last kings of of Ankhmore Pork or whatever, like any kings. He put them down if it meant that like he didn't have to suffer an innocent person dying. 
And I think maybe this is mm-hmm. what he recognizes in Vetinari, where Vetinari has done so much to, like, bring up the general state of living in Ankh-Mor Park with things like the creation of the guilds and stuff. Like, Vetinari gives a shit about the city when no one else really does on a fundamental running level, even though Vetinari doesn't want to do it. Someone just has to do it. And I think maybe Vimes recognizes that in him. It was when it was revealed in Men at Arms that most of Vimes' money goes to the Widows and Orphans Fund for, uh, you know, like, uh, the families of um, Dead Watch members. And I, I just like as well in this book where they're like, we've got so much, when he takes the money from the assassin and he's like, put it into the widow and pension, Widows and Pensions Fund. And it's like, oh, we'll have enough money now that we can, <laughs> we'll eventually be able to afford new widows. <laughs> Love, uh, just as a sidebar, I love the assassination attempts on Vimes. That's going to become a running joke in the in the books, and I love it. I am here for it. Like where his mirror is curved, so yeah. he can see behind him. <laughs> is it just because yeah. he? Is it just because he like went into the Assassins Guild when he wasn't meant to at the end of the last, like at the end of Men at Arms? Not so much that like he had the last head of the Assassins Guild killed. Um. I think that that's part of it, but I also think that the watch upsets a lot of people. Like he's a player now, right? In the mm. in the game that is Ankh Morpork, he wasn't before. Remember, he was relegated to the gutter, and the watch was almost completely constricted. And now he's like doing things and upsetting people, which is what Vetinari wants him to do, right? Because Vetinari, even though he you know, will say things like, oh, you, I, I, tell, I forbade you to do this. Like, he actually wants Vimes to be this kind of force of chaos, like to, to kind of balance the guilds, I think, which is what is needed, I believe. I think that's what he means when he says, if, if he didn't exist, I'd have to invent him. Or I did invent him. Yeah. But I also think that... I think Vimes knows that Vetinari cares about the city but i don't think vimes because vimes does say a lot of like you know if anyone's gonna kill him i'm gonna kill him like types of types of stuff in this book and i think it's because vimes gay for each other hates they are but i also think that vimes hates the way that veterinary goes about it he understands that it's necessary but he hates the cold calculation that Vetinari has to engage in in order to run this city. It felt like the the narration, like when Vimes was talking to him when he was in like the bed and whatever, it felt like Vimes was nearly annoyed that he could like be personable with uh, the patrician. It was kind of the same thing when he got shot in Men at Arms. And now I have to come to terms with the fact with like, it seems to be that the watch, every new watch book is going to like, endanger the life of the patrician who's i don't know why my comfort character <laughs> or a comfort character have lock veterinary forever he just he he nearly felt annoyed that he was like well the he's a real person who gets poisoned too yeah and like you get to see a lot more of it i love that veterinary is like writing a treatise on like human nature and he's like drawing at one point and like he mm. it's we do get to see him vulnerable in this book. How did that make you feel? 
Yeah, it's really good at bringing him in, because especially the way he's presented in The Color of Magic is not necessarily the best light, where he just runs um, Rincewind out of the city, essentially. But it's, it's interesting that, like... Because I think this is what is essentially at the core of Fedenari and that Vimes recognizes is is what he's writing about in his treatise, where it's very, it's very much like a treatise on the rights of man. Spelled R-I-T-E-S. Yeah, or I don't know, like it feels in that vein of like enlightenment writing where they're like, hey, human beings have rights and shouldn't be exploited. And like, you know, the fact that the leader of Ankh Morpork is writing this bodes well. Yeah, it's, it is interesting, the vulnerability we get to see from Betnari. Also with Vimes, what did you think about the continuation of the thread about alcoholism in this? Because in oh, this book, in the last book... If you didn't book, bring that up, I was going to bring it up. Yeah, because in the last book, we got to see Vimes struggle with his alcoholism, and he has a relapse in Men at Arms. In this book, he does not have a relapse, even though... Dragon King at Arms tries to force a relapse by putting a bottle of whiskey in his desk and he has to end up pouring it out. And he's like, I have to replace the carpet. Like, I can't smell this. But apparently he's been going to meetings. It was really refreshing. I got really, really worried when that bottle appeared because like, you know, he talked like he talks about feeling nearly like a failure with like all of this progress that he's made and then backsliding because he feels like he can't resist this bottle of whiskey, you know, and getting up in front of the meetings and having to like say my name is Sam Vimes and stuff like after having relapsed. But it like so few pieces of media ever really portray addiction in, you know, ways that aren't really judgy. Because, like, a lot of... I know it's mainly with people who use drugs, uh, where they're kind of presented as untrustworthy, or, like, they're villainized, like, as a result of their addiction, um, which is something they really don't have any control over. Uh, But, like, alcohol addiction as well. Like, with the cigars in the last book, where this is something that um, Sybil was helping him battle his alcoholism by having a cigar instead and he still has them and he's like what is it he's like drinking oh hold on I have the quote highlighted Um, but there's something about like where he knows he can't have the alcohol even though he's looking at it like early on yeah I mean I think he says something like he knew he couldn't have one drink because one drink would come in a dozen glasses. I remember that quote, yeah, no, I think that was what it was, but that whole thing where he's at the the bucket, the watch bar, and everyone else is having a drink, but he has his little I don't know what it is is it ginger ale or yeah, water? that's what I was looking for what he's drinking yeah. where it's like a non alcoholic option, which is bizarre to consider that a fantasy world has non-alcoholic options because like when you think about taverns i suppose uh because there's no real bars in fantasy they're they're taverns for the most Mm. part or it's just like a big mug of ale doesn't doesn't even seem to be wine in any of these everyone just drinks ale which i mean i don't know about you but i think beer is kind of rank um don't like it 
yeah i mean and it's funny because cherry doesn't like beer either remember she's like i i don't i can't quaff i don't i don't like it and so she just starts drinking wet angua drinks when they go to the the undead bar i i do say that mm. i love i love too when vimes compares para, his paranoia to his alcoholism when he's talking to carrot and uh he says, I was talking about policing, not alcohol. There's a lot of people who will help you with the alcohol business, but there's no one out there arranging little meetings where you can stand up and say, my name is Sam and I'm a really suspicious bastard, <laughs> which I thought that that was like a really great moment where he's talking about how like he's suspicious of everything and things keep proving him right because he has such a low opinion of the universe and human nature and all of that. But I feel like a, a like a meeting of paranoid people would be everyone on their own talking, but presuming there was a bunch of other people watching them. <laughs> like you just stand in yes. your garden and you'd say, "Hi, my name is Nigel. I'm a suspicious bastard," and you think there'd be people hiding behind the trees, being like, "Yeah, hi, Nigel." Uh, yeah. Yep. 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 Question: Where's veterinary's dog? I don't know. I don't know where Waffles is. I assume he's like in his little bed beside the the sick bed. We haven't we haven't heard from him, but like Waffles was established as elderly, so I really hope Waffles hasn't passed on. No comment. <laughs> no comment. I don't like that. Moving on. Moving on. So the other thing I wanted to say about these characters before we start moving into like the main plot of the book and to some of the other characters, I guess I we've talked before about how Vimes and Carrot are kind of like an immovable object in an unstoppable force. Like they both have such different views of the world, like fundamentally different. Vimes is a suspicious bastard and Carrot is like this charismatic actually believes in all of this stuff like idealistic he's not as naive as he used to be but that's because of vimes mainly and so when you Mm. put them together they make each other better i think because carrot throughout this book i really noticed this this time reading it carrot throughout this book is constantly saying mr vimes says mr vimes says and then I noticed that Vimes has started to say Carrot always says. Did you notice that in this book? Like they both have started yeah. to, I mean, they, they had already started to learn from each other, but now they've got this thing going on where they think a lot about what the other person has said and they're starting to believe it. Even things that Vimes says sarcastically, Carrot believes. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount to like, the certain amount that goes towards like being a good person and like standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. But like this, I think coupled with um, Angua's kind of like dilemma about whether she's going to leave Carrot or not, because like, yeah, he's good, but he's so simple to her. And you know, she, where she's like, even just have like one negative trait, please don't like stop being a good person. Mm. because like it's so incredible and unbelievable that like such a person could exist but i think like he only exists as he does because he met sam vimes because his parents were like well we're gonna send you off into the city and you can like have this experience 
it's just it's fascinating to me that Carrot is continually making Vimes a more not idealistic person because Vimes will never be idealistic, but he's starting to believe in things. And the only reason the watch exists the way that it does in Feet of Clay as it's beginning to in Feet of Clay is because of Carrot. Yeah, because he found an obscure bylaw that meant that Vimes <laughs> didn't have to retire to like dying a lonely death. Right, but he also caused Vimes to believe in it again. To actually think that the watch could do something. Whereas yeah. Carrot is also not the same kid from Guards Guards. He's not throwing books at people. You know, like he's got more understanding of what the law actually is and what it's meant to do. Yeah, there's an interesting middle ground in between. You know, like that scene where Carrot storms into the into the guild and he's like, you know, Oh, where he he says, well, you know, if you don't get anything, leave. And he's like, well, I don't want to have to be, I don't want to have to do what I've been told to do by my superiors. Yeah. You won't, you like, I mean, you're not going to like that. Where he's like, he understands that, like, what the correct thing to do is, what the law says to do and what his superiors have said to do. But he's able to, like, play with that in a way that, like, Carrot, who literally like takes everything literally, in in um, guards guards like wouldn't be able to. Right, and I don't think that the carrot in guards guards would have understood that Dorfel was a person, or that he mm. was alive, because the the carrot from guards guards would have probably sided with the priests and with the laws, and carrot understands in this book understands that that's not. That's not actually the spirit of the law. And so he understands that what happens to Dorfel is actually murder, or he thinks it's murder at the time. Whereas most of the laws would not have recognized that as murder. Hmm. Uh, Angua at one point says someone has to be very complex indeed to be as simple as Carrot. And I think that that is a really I interesting like insight. Like I said before, Angua and Carrot is a relationship that I actually give shit about. And it's refreshing to have kind of a dilemma that's not based around, you know, some sort of miscommunication where the other, where one person thinks the other is like secretly seeing someone else, which is like a trope that you get in media around like new couples and stuff, where they're like, oh, well, we're now together, but like, are they actually faithful? Where it's like, I don't know whether I can, like, be with this person even though I, uh, I like, love them because, like, fundamentally I think their belief system doesn't really work with mine. Uh, and their realities are different. She is worried about Carrot's reaction to people being prejudiced against her as a werewolf. Because she, that's one of the feet of clay in this, right? Is that there are a lot of people, even in the watch, who don't trust her and who keep mm. a little silver in their pockets, right? And, and, yeah, and, even and she's Cherry, like, just hit someone even once, right? For my yeah, sake. Even Cherry, she doesn't know Angua is the werewolf, but she says some really speciousist things to Angua about werewolves. And it, bothers Carrot, but he doesn't know what to do with those feelings, Angua says. 
And so she's mm. like, it's not going to work. Like he doesn't understand. Like I'm, I am making his life worse. Like there's a lot of self blame in Angua's storyline, a lot of, uh, self-loathing i think for what she is because she's trying to not yeah, definitely kill people but she recognizes that it's really hard and that she might slip up one day uh like especially the fact that carrot doesn't know what to do as a champion like of what's right and for people who like need a champion uh you know like the fact that he can't really like affect any kind of change or he believes he can't for like the woman that he loves that he you know he just kind of has to suffer as she has these like you know prejudices levied against her and the fact that she's suffering i don't think he understands fully that like angua thinks she's making his life worse i think he's just like like that hasn't even crossed his mind yeah which like I don't know, it makes it even more painful. Like, all throughout the books, we've gotten these things where, like, carrot is simple, but in the same way that a sword is simple. And, like, you have to be very complex to be as simple as carrot is in this book. But this feels like one of those, like, moral lessons that are instilled in, like, dark superhero films, like Man of Steel, where they're like, well, you can't save everyone. Or there's this, this like you know, thing that they can't do, whatever that is. Like, I don't know, in Batman versus Superman, he can't, Superman can't find his mother. Where, mm. like, Carrot can do, can do all these amazing things and, like, by birth, he's entitled to the entire city of Ankh-Morpork. But he doesn't know what to do when someone is prejudiced against his girlfriend. Yeah, and he, I think it's because he doesn't understand the prejudice either. Like, he has no issues mm. with, with Angua or her being a werewolf or you know, anything like that. And I think that that makes him really blind, not only to her struggle, but also to how other people view her and how those little things affect her. Because she even says, it doesn't bother me. Well, it doesn't bother me much, right? Like there are, there, it does bother her, yeah. right? That these people are like, and it really bothers her that Cherry is like it because she and Cherry are friends. Um, and so Cherry has to learn too that like, I feel like Cherry's prejudice is very, you know how like there are some people who are, who talk shit about other races. And then when they actually meet someone from that race, they're like, oh, okay. Like you're a person. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like that's what happens with Cherry and Angua. And I, I appreciate that it's like, it gets into the complexity of the people like, who f- who are marginalized for one reason hold prejudices against people who are marginalized for other reasons where it's not like you know like where it's not um black and white oh you can only be marginalized for one reason and even like internalized prejudices are are, are a thing you know yeah and that comes up with angola too because she's prejudiced against golems because they're unalive is what she calls them and she's like they Mm. don't you know people aren't putting silver in their pockets when they walk by you know and so it's very like oppression olympics right like like oh well we hate them because they get treated better than we do and they're not even alive either you know like it's it's really interesting the way that different types of prejudice are teased out in this book and that everybody, like, Angua is able to stand up for Cherry 
but she's not able to see Dorfel is alive until Carrot convinces her. And Carrot, you know, isn't able to see past the transphobia, at least at first, until the end of the book. But he's able to recognize that the golem is a person. Like, it's really interesting the way that every single character has these feet, like this feet of clay, right? Like, they're really good in this one area, but this other area, they have to examine those prejudices. I don't know. Like, it comes it comes back to, I think, there's a weird similarity drawn between Carrot and Dorfel, especially because, like, in the, sa- in the way that they're, like, in the way that they they think and the way that they act and especially like golems they're kind of presented in that same way the, the same single-minded way that they talk about vimes and carrot and also ridcully in a way you where mm. his mind is like it's very simple but it's like a train on a track and it's very hard to divert where they talk about you know no one has told a golem to stop digging a canal and so they go right through the land and then it's all flooded with water from both sides like obviously it's not the same thing, but it's the same way they're described. And I think that's an intriguing part where it's like, I don't, I don't really know how to like put it into words, but like Angua's feelings about Carrot not being able to stand up for her. And then, but like in turn, she views um, Dorfel and the other golems as like, you know, mindless and unalive. Mm-hmm. They're machines. She refers to them as it constantly, which is it's, it's such an interesting juxtaposition that she's able to tell Carrot, use the right pronoun for Cherry, but she struggles with the pronoun for Dorful. Yes, like, like I mean, people can choose to identify with the pronoun it, it's. I know a few people who do, but like, if it's like, if it's not their choice then don't do that. It's so dehumanizing if it's not their choice. Like, I mean, like you said, if that's what they want, then that's what they want. But historically, it and its have been used to dehumanize people in order to commit atrocities on them. Yeah. Do you know who refers to to people exclusively as it? Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Yes. No. Yeah. Which, I mean, also goes back to like, bad depictions of trans people, unlike Cherry in this book. Um, Before we get off of Angua and start talking about the golems, because I I know that both of us really Oh yeah, the actual plot of the book. book. (laughs) Yeah, the actual plot of the book. But before we get off that, I did want to note, just because these things interest me, and I, I like the way that Pratchett is starting to tease, we've talked about this before, he's starting to tease future plots, in these books. I don't know if you noticed the several people that mention Angua's father and how unhappy he is about her being in the watch and being in Ankh-Morpork and not behaving the way that like a werewolf should behave. But that is definitely a tease. That is definitely a tease of a future book. Yeah, I just thought it was sort of like uh, another thing which goes back to traditional views of what people and like what people should do or occupy certain roles, you know, where mm-hmm. like, well, a werewolf shouldn't do this, but like, well, a werewolf is doing this dad. So. Right. I mean, I think that that is what it is, but it is also building this idea that like she has a family and her family keeps tabs on mm. her and, you know, like 
that that this might be a conflict that that could erupt later on. So I, I just thought that that was really, really cool the way that he's already starting to do that more. But let's talk about yeah. Dorfel and the golems. And before we get into this, I have to apologize because I told you a couple of books ago that there was no like AI android uprising because I completely forgot the ways in which the golems are really associated with androids. So that's my bad. Hex does not uprise, but we do get this storyline about machines going through if not an uprising, then like a change in their status. So I, I'm oh, very I didn't even see this know. as an AI story. I was like, this is the communism part. There is a lot of also communism and Marxism in this as well, and a lot of classism, yeah. which the android historically has been a stand-in for a lot of those issues. But yeah, I mean, but this is something that's been in science fiction for a very long time. So we get the android machine being part of this, the the lowest class, because they're not even classified as people. But then we also get this influence from Jewish mythology, because that's where golems as a concept come from. And one of your favorite things is in this book, because the font that they use for the golems writing on the slate is stylized in a way to look like the Hebrew alphabet. So you do get a lot of that like Jewish mythology in this. Tell me your thoughts about the golems. Tell me your thoughts about this thread. I I think golems as a concept are really really cool. I'm trying to remember where I like first like encountered golems as a thing because obviously I know they're part of um Judaism and Jewish mythology and like, you know, the words of life that are in their mouth and stuff. And like, you know, they're made out of clay and all the like, it's very tied into a very specific um, religious and spiritual tradition. But I think like I encountered them in um, The Alchemist by Michael Scott. Uh, not the office guy, but a different guy. Also not the architect called Michael Scott. But I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And obviously, like, it comes slightly back to using figures and myths which are part of other cultures' traditions. But at the same time, this doesn't feel nearly as bad as, like, other uses of cultural cultural myths and stuff. Like even within the disc world, like, and we kind of talked about this with the Rinswin books where borrowing from, um, Asian cultures and mythologies and history in interesting times felt very like on the border of being outright offensive. And even like the reference to, to the dreaming at the end when he goes to four X, but the golems feel they feel more obviously I can't speak with like a hundred percent authority, but they feel more in line with how they're depicted in Jewish mythology. I really like golems. Yeah. It feels a lot more like what Terry Pratchett does with voodoo in which is abroad where it's like, yes, this is a, this is a, sp a real spiritual practice on earth. 
this is like the Discworld version of it, but it doesn't feel offensive in the same way that like, say, Interesting Times feels offensive. That's kind of how I felt about the golems in this, is that they're clearly based in a Hebrew Jewish practice, but they're not supposed to be like exact replicas. And they're not they're not a joke. They're not a punchline. Right. They're they're an actual species of beings who are going through their own journey in this case their own uprising just on that like it's interesting because they're both kind of like closed practices which shouldn't really be discussed by people outside of them but they feel less disingenuous than other portrayals in Discworld what did you think about Dorfel who is really our main access point to the golems as a species Dorfel, Dorfel is really cool. I like Dorfel. Dorfel, Dorfel at the end. Constable, yes, Constable Dorfel seems like a very personable chap. I, the whole plot line, the whole murder, can I just say as a fan of like crime and murder mysteries and stuff, the murder in this is so fucking like, it's just rad. Like, I told whole, you, it is really kind of a closed yeah. room because you have no idea how it's happening and Vimes doesn't understand it either. Yeah, and obviously, like, you get into this whole thing where the golems start, like, turning themselves in and saying they did it and you don't understand why they're doing it. And, like, the stuff they're writing on their slabs before they, they kill themselves, you're like, clay of my clay, shame, is... Like, it's so interesting, but, like, Dorfel being on the outside of that and, like, one of the few golems who actually survives, especially because he's inducted into the Watch and is meant to be, like, representative of people viewed as, like, unalive. And especially because you have the undead, like, vampires and stuff. In Like, we saw that in Reaper Man with Red Shoe and all of the, like, that whole club, where there's the undead and then there's the unalive, which is a really important distinction in prejudices that the Discworld is, is attempting to draw. Yeah, and they're very othered, but it's interesting the way in which they're othered is associated with classism. So, like, this idea that they yeah. are, like, the lowest of the lowest working class and... It's interesting the ways in which, like Dorfel says when they ask him about why the golems made a king, which I, that is such a fascinating idea that they made another golem and then poured all their hopes and dreams into him and it drove him insane because there was no way that he could possibly do any of that. And I like though that Dorfel summarizes all of it by saying when they're at when they ask him what did you want like what did you what do golems want he says respite like we want to rest and I I find Mm. that very compelling from both a Marxist perspective but also from like a classist perspective as well because you know he says to Vimes at one point Uh, You say to people, throw off your chains and they make new chains for themselves. You know, this idea that freedom is actually Mm. quite scary and it's easier sometimes to participate in that system than it is to think of a new system. 
Hmm, I'm trying to see, do I have it here? That really reminded me of a quote from an episode of Welcome to Nightville, but I think the book is inside. It's not I, It's not in my shed, because I have the script books. But, like, that whole th thing where you tell them to throw off their chains and they forge more chains really reminded me of, actually, a story where an AI becomes sentient. Where they're talking about, like, we always talk about freedom as like an open field or a bird flying free in a blue sky, but we're really, really limiting ourselves in like how we view freedom. So if we ever were to become free, we wouldn't really know what to do with ourselves because we, we've built ourselves like an entire new structure by which to like oppress us. If you compare it to what Vimes says about, is it Cockbill Street? Is that where he grew up? Yeah. Yeah. When you compare it to that, like those people and the way that those people are described where they're, they're so law abiding, but the law never gives them anything. Like the idea that they're, that they're stuck in this system because they can't imagine another way of living, but they're so miserable. Uh, Lauren Berlant calls this cruel optimism. The idea that you keep thinking that the system is going to work while it's actively destroying you and like comparing <laughs> those people. Yeah. Comparing those people with the golems and this idea that like if you said, hey, there's another way people wouldn't necessarily take it because it's unfamiliar to them because they keep thinking, well, one day this is going to work. It's quite sad mm. and it's quite depressing. Yeah. And especially because like. Uh, Dorfel doesn't understand when Carrot buys him. He doesn't understand that he's free when he hands him, you know, this writ of purchase where he's like, there you go, you're free now. You can do whatever you want. Like, he doesn't understand until Carrot puts it into his head. But then when Carrot was like, well, maybe this is, like, harming Dorfel. I'm going to take it out. Like, he stops him. He he nearly harms Carrot, being like, no. It, it takes It takes, like, altering Dorfel at his very being, like, in the very center of who he is, and quite literally what makes him alive to realize that the system is never going to do anything unless he, he affects change himself. It's what allows him to stay alive when the king takes out his, like, destroys his chem. Mm. Carrot thinks he's dead, that he's been murdered, but then he actually ends up saving Carrot because, the what does he say, the words in the heart cannot be destroyed? Which just like, oh, that yeah. got me. They got me so, so much. The words in the heart cannot be destroyed. And that would have never happened if Carrot hadn't put the, the writ in his, in his head. It's a nice dichotomy between the words of the heart and the chains of the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like what, what, what's oppressing the golems and what eventually sets Dorfil free and like allows him to, to remain alive. Well, I suppose I suppose saying alive is wrong. Like I like we both know what I mean by alive in the context of the book, but it's not correct because the, the golems are alive all the time. Right, exactly. Aware, maybe. What did you think of Dorfel's plan at the end as it's articulated to Vimes to save up money to buy buy another golem and set him free, and then those two will buy another golem and set them free? I really liked that. I think like like, I don't know why, because, you know, you could go into that and read, well, you know, read it and go like, well, there's, 
there's so many other ways you could affect change. But like, I don't know, this feels right and it feels honest. Well, I wonder if he knows that even if he tried to like because remember, he destroys the wheel that those golems are working on and they just start trying to rebuild it. And so it kind of ties into that idea that like, I can't actually do this violently because the golems themselves won't do it. Like they won't go for it. You have to have that writ of purchase to put it in their heads in order to free. Yeah. I think at the end of it, I kind of came back to viewing it through a Marxist lens where it's like the worker has finally seized the means of production and they've obviously you need to give the person the proof uh, that they're free, and in the in the case of golems, it's literally putting a receipt into their head. Right. But like, on an economic theory level, it's like, well, you're no longer disenfranchising um, a worker from the wealth they create and the surplus wealth that they end up giving to the person who owns the company. Um, mm-hmm. You're like, well, it, not to stray too far into like what Ayn Rand was espousing, but with the whole, like, Ugh. the workers entitled to the sweat of their own brow shit. Yeah. No. But, like, I, I definitely think it's a returning to the worker, the, you know, the means to, to work and feed and, and, like, live for themselves. It's out of this capitalist hellscape. And Dorfel's able to negotiate. He knows exactly what his labor is worth because he says, you'll pay me twice as much because I work twice as much. Like, he's not going to accept yeah. less than what his labor is worth. Because, like, I don't know, this is completely outside of Discworld, but it's like, you see these this really worrying shit on Twitter where someone posted, like, an office memo that was taped to a door, and uh, like, at their work. And it was like, oh, for every minute you're late coming in, you have to work an extra 10 minutes at the end no. of the day. So if you come in at 8.02, you have to work until 6.20. And it's like, n- no. The the exploitation of the working class is so fucking frightening that we've all become essentially like wage slaves to Jeffrey fucking Bezos old uh, or old gooseberries. By the way, Sam still calls Elon Musk that, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a reference to another podcast that our listeners might <laughs> like if they only listen to Nanny Ox, they're like, I don't know what that is. Don't know what that is. <laughs> oh man, that was good. Go check out Monkey. Off Monkey my off my backlog. Yeah. What did you think about the King Golem storyline? Mashuga, I think, is what they call him. I forgot to look it up. Mashuga means something, doesn't it? That is a great question. I think it's a Hebrew word. Um, There's a lot of Hebrew words because she- Chem is a version of Shem, which is name in Hebrew. So there's a lot of like Hebrew words in this. Mashuga is yeah. a band. Uh, but what's the word mean? Meshuggah of a person, informal North American adjective, of a person mad or crazy. What does the Hebrew word meshuggah mean? You're crazy or foolish. Yeah, it's from Yiddish, it looks like. Just looked it up. Ah. Okay, so not Hebrew, Yiddish. I apologize. Yeah, I think, the, the, like we said, the concept of creating a king and projecting all of your hopes and dreams on them is really interesting. But also, like, the way... I'm a real sucker for, like, turning things into, like, other things. Like, bigging them up. Like, the way it's referred to as the white golem throughout. I don't know why. That's just, like... That really struck me as being, like... 
Yeah, he has a crown and like his eyes are just like two burning points of fire. He's very visually striking. Yeah. But the concept of like too many words and like the room where they made the golem like has the big words on the wall. Do you, have you read any Isaac Asimov? Like iRobot? No, I haven't. I took out the first three Foundation books because I wanted to read it before the Foundation series and I never got around to it. I had the books out from the library for like seven months and forgot about them. It was a dark time. The way that Meshuga is driven crazy by having too many rules in its head is very reminiscent of some of the things that happen in iRobot because iRobot is one of those seminal AI texts. And that's where you get like the three laws of robotics from, which are like, you don't kill anybody. Like you can't kill a person and that's kill or harm a person. That's number one. You can't do anything that directly leads to the harm of a sentient person. Right. You have to obey a person unless it violates rule one. And you have to, you can't allow harm to come to yourself unless it violates rules one and two. So like... That's like the way that Asimov writes iRobot. It's a series of short stories that are basically like logic puzzles where something is affected by those rules. Like the AI, as it's evolving, learns how to interpret those rules differently or they have a conflict between the rules and so they go mad. Like it's like a bunch of different stories about those things. And that is what Mashuga really reminded me of was like the you put too many rules in in his head and some of those rules are going to conflict with each other. Some of those dreams can't possibly work or they can't possibly be interpreted. And it's clearly obvious that he's in a lot of pain because of Mm. all of the rules in his head, which, I mean, I found that very affecting, even though he's like murderous. Um, And the fact that they make him make these arsenic candles directly violates the thou shall not kill rule in his head, which further destabilizes him i don't have associations with um asimov because i haven't read them but like culturally we do there's an um there's a celtic story about some hero i can't remember his name but it 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 goes back to um the concept of gas which we talked about there's a story where he where, where the person in this story ends up under so many gasana uh, which is the plural of gas, if you were wondering. G-E-A-S-A-N-N-A. It, I've never known there was a plural, under, so... Yeah. That's good. He ends up under so many where it, it's like... To continue at all, like, means breaking one. Because, like, they're often really, really contradictory. And that's what ends up, like, causing his demise. And I think... That's similar to Meshuggah in this, where all of the words that were put into his head, like, contradict one another and end up, like, actively making things worse, obviously. I don't know. Also, I think it's really cool that Meshuggah can repair himself. Like, when he drops off the roof when he's holding on to to Colin. Yeah. And also, there's a lot of references not just to Asimov but to Terminator as well especially in that scene with Colin because like him falling and then putting himself back together again in this like like kind of horror movie type sequence right when your enemy is able to Mm. rebuild themselves from from scratch that's the T-1000 
Yeah, and so like there's there are a lot of Terminator references, and then the fight between Dorfel and Mashuga has a lot of Terminator vibes to it. Um, like in T two when they when they fight each other, and so like there is, I, I think there are a lot of classic robot science fiction things happening here as well, beyond just the too many rules in the head. And I really like this about Discworld that it has so many like layers upon layers of references that it's built on in the kind of like Isaac Newton if I can see further it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants but except like instead of the shoulders of giants you're standing on loam it's always loam yeah oh and I guess that means I just now realized this in real time I guess that means that Constable Dorfel is Robocop so yes there's, there's another one there you go I love this scene where he's arresting Dragon King at Arms and he says, I could kill you, but I choose not to. But I have moral agency because I belong to nobody. <laughs> like his whole like uh, reasoning is just great. The argument with the priests on the bridge, which we get to see. We Hunan get to see Ridcully's brother again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought that that was all really great. What did you think about Dragon King at Arms, who is the real villain of this story, and his plot to put knobby knobs on the throne? I mean, uh, four words. Fair fucks to him. <laughs> it certainly was an attempt. I think, like, I think what it comes down to is that you can do so much planning and, like, have these massive genealogies of people, but, like, what differentiates him from like because he wants to put Nobby on the throne because he thinks Nobby's going to be a better fit and it will solve the problem of the guilds and all this thing but what separates him from like Vedanari is the Dragon King at King of Arms doesn't understand people like he doesn't know who Nobby is and doesn't mm -hmm. know how like how much of an anathema he is to the ruling class like when he goes to that house and they're asking him what he wants to drink, and he's like, I, I just want a beer. Like, a pint I of want Winkles, a beer, please. and I want some... Yeah, I want a pint of Winkles, and I want, like, the ends of a pig. And they're like, oh, how refreshingly novel it is to be working class, you know? Like, it all comes back to classism at the end, where they, they can't... Where they're like, oh, it must be some sort of joke. He can't be... He can't really be, like this 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 ruling figure because of his working class backgrounds which is interesting because like that's what carrot is in that very like aragorn strider way um he, well i mean aragorn was never working class that don't don't take it that way but yeah but he like lives a life that's not one of luxury i guess at least for like the yeah first like part not of his life yeah i really enjoyed the scene where they're at the bar and he keeps like unintentionally like offending or annoying people and then it comes back to well i'm the i'm the earl of ankh pork so really like what are you gonna do and then he leaves and, and curling gets presented with the bill and he's <laughs> like that's all the money i have oh well, how lucky that is <laughs> i loved that I, I really like your point that Dragon doesn't understand people he only understands bloodlines which by the way the fact that he's a eugenist didn't escape my notice like he was definitely pulling yeah. some race science stuff there at the end especially with what he says about carrot and angua yeah like he's genuinely surprised that the werewolves give a shit about like their genealogy like instead of just yeah. being 
what uncivilized people but the fact that carrot's not a candidate because his kids with angua would be werewolves like yeah he's just like yeah. no well i just think it's funny though that he like you said he doesn't understand nobby because he thinks nobby will be easily manipulated because like oh he's so dumb because he's lower class and he just likes his beer and his pig knuckles but when presented with the idea, Nobby says no, because he's like, Vimes would kill me. And he's like, well, no, you could order him to be dead. He'd go spare. <laughs> like, yeah. I loved that. As a I phrase loved- as well. I love going spare. <laughs> I love yeah. that Nobby is like, he's so loyal slash afraid of Vimes that he can't be tricked into this plot to become king. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not yeah because it's not the case that like Vimes is against upward social mobility because like I mean he married Lady Sybil Ramkin and he's now like right. th- what is it the third most wealthy person in all of Ankh-Morpork? It's that like Nobby would become a king and that's something he's inherently against. He's he's mad enough at Nobby for pretending to be a king at the beginning of the book in uh, when he's doing the the society that recreates historical battles. He's like angry enough about that. We also finally, finally get to see the actual note that Nobby carries around to prove that he is a human being. That was so funny. It's signed by Venari. (laughs) But it's also not like, oh, not like, you know, this person, Nobby Nobs, is a human it's the, like we can say that the burden of proof indicates that he's probably human or something like that yeah i have talked to the midwife and we're yeah. pretty we're pretty sure we're pretty sure that he's human oh my god uh also we find out what two of his initials stand for the stj is saint john uh i don't know what cw stands for uh in it uh, Vetinari does have to promise once again a new dartboard for the watch at the end of this book. This is my favorite running gag. <laughs> Honestly, it's my favorite running gag. Like, they save the city from, like, malevolent guns and, you know, like, a golem which is killing innocent people and also poisoning Vetinari. And they're like, well, what do you want as your reward? Well, I mean, we could use another dartboard. The and it's not keeps even, breaking like, them. <laughs> Yeah, it's not even like we need a new one because we've got another watch house because our operation is expanding. It's Detritus keeps breaking the ones you give us. <laughs> what did you think about Detritus's part in this? It's not as much as he's had in other books, but he and Colin both uh, have little for- storylines. I forgot about this. Like, And it really goes back to what I think Snuff is going to be. He's... Detritus has started a drugs task force which is against selling drugs to children. Yes. Um and he becomes which which of the first ladies was it that had that like campaigning against drugs? Just say no to drugs. Nancy Reagan. Nancy I couldn't remember whether it was Nancy Reagan or Hillary Clinton. Just yeah, say Arg. He become <laughs> I thought that was really interesting and as well because it's not like it's not like any kind of drug we see before. Like this, like slab is something that's cut up between like phosphorus and other stuff. Like it, it's a created drug. For you know, trolls, it's not like a, specifically, like humans couldn't take this. 
but I mean, but what I mean in in that it's created, it's not like weed where you've grown it from hemp or something. You know, this is something you've made with the express purpose of selling, and it's ended up in the hands of children, and they're being endangered. Right. Like, that's an important distinction. Um, I think you should put me in charge of legalizing weed in America. I'll just be like, well, yeah, job done. Yeah. Is it, did you know there was a day in Ireland where they legal where they accidentally legalized like every drug, like ecstasy and everything? They just for what? It was day? like a loophole when, yeah, it was a loophole in a law that they passed where they like they hadn't <laughs> they hadn't accounted for it being because they were basically doing like a amendment, I think was what it was, or they were updating the law, but it was to do with that, where essentially for a day, you could legally buy opioids and ecstasy and stuff in Ireland. And then wow. they like quite quickly cottoned on to that. But it was so funny. This was back in like 2015, 2016 time. Wild. Wild. That's... Yeah. I would do that again, though. Yeah. Uh, we should just put you in charge of drugs in, in the US. You can, you can decide. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thing that's happening now. Because they're talking about like festivals on on the radio now, because it's festival season here in Ireland, and they're talking about like having safe spaces for people who are you know experiencing negative symptoms of having done drugs, but like they can go there and not be arrested. They can yeah. like actually get support there, it which is a new out, thing here. It turns out that if you don't stigmatize. Uh, drug addiction that you actually have a better chance of helping people treat their addiction funny so, how that do funny um, how that and, works yeah like i'm going to amsterdam next month as i mentioned before the call which is Ooh. a perfect example of like how you can do this i think yeah amsterdam amsterdam feels i i haven't been there but like from the vibes it feels slightly ankh more porky Ooh, you'll have to tell me like a Victorian yeah. English Amsterdam. Interesting. Yeah, that that reminds me, like, I know I've mentioned that, like, the closest analog I think that there is to Ankh-Morpork at this stage, like, especially early Ankh-Morpork, is Victorian London, you know, like, straight out of Dickens. But, like, Dragon King of Arms is the most Victorian man because, oh, yes. like, he yes. believes in eugenics and he, he's, like, he feels like if he would just walk off screen, he'd take out, like, a measuring tape to start doing phrenology. I mean, he basically is Francis Galton, the the father of eugenics. Yeah. Like, the idea that we could improve the, the breeding, like, we could pr- improve the breeding stocks if we just kept track of everything and we encouraged the right people to marry the right people and stopped people who, who yeah. shouldn't get married from marrying each other. Yeah, uh, he's basically that. Victorian Victorian people are like Victorian men who believed in eugenics are always the wildest bunch because they never stop at just believing in eugenics. They always like also have some other crazy shit going on the side. Like the arch what's his name? The archaeologist who just went into like dig sites and just started blowing shit up with dynamite. They always have strange methods. Yeah. They're always just the most insane people. <laughs> so we get a lot of cameos in this. We get Dibbler is in one scene. We get foul old Ron and the, the beggars. We're getting Gaspode because he hangs out with the beggars now. I don't know if you noticed that. They didn't name him, but he's the one who's talking to. Yeah, yeah he's but the he's dog. the dog. 
Angua is still staying at Mrs. Cake's place. And as you mentioned, uh, we get to see Rudkoli's brother, Hunan Rudkoli. Mm. Can I just say, with the beggars, with the beggars, we get to see the duck man again. And it's so funny. I think it's about time you, you feed your duck. What duck? <laughs> we also get to see Queen Molly again and the heads yes. of the guild leaders. Uh, Molly, Molly is the only one who speaks out against the plan to put Nobby on the throne. And she's the only one who warns Vimes by sending foul Ron to warn him. So I find that that's a nice good old Queen Molly. That's a nice continuation because, like, when the Ghana was on its rampage, like by way of, um, uh, you know, by way of the Assassins Guild, like it was the person who, like, it was a case of another innocent being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, like I can't remember her name, but the one who put on Queen Molly's jewelry just to try it on and get shot like for being mistaken for queen molly and that's that's the moral line that vimes and carrot draw again that like you can like in this book it's it's religious old men and in that book it was guild heads and people associated with the guilds like fine you can kill them that's whatever but the second you you spill a drop of innocent blood and like he stood up for her when no one else did so i feel like yeah. queen molly is indebted to him nearly for that it, it is a really interesting tapestry that he's created of all of the guilds and how some of the guilds are perhaps more on Vimes's side than other guilds. Although yeah. I did love his warning to the guilds at the end where he puts the axe in the table to be like, mm. I'm here to balance out those ambitions. Like, if you try this again, like, heads will roll. I'm going to be here with this axe. Yeah, exactly. I I thought that was good. I was trying to remember what the white golem reminded me of, and it reminded me of Whiteface in um in the Guild of Fools, like the thing that all clowns are afraid oh, yeah. of. Is yeah, a clown the, with the completely white. Yeah, and that reminded I me of. Think I, about that. I read a Tumblr post as well where it's like this is actually a thing where you need to get your your clown makeup copyrighted. Where I didn't know, like you know, the thing where they said they like his his nose, and that's why it's wrong because like they did like he's stolen his face. Someone was saying that like they should do a comic book storyline where the Joker gets like set upon by like actual clowns and stuff using his makeup because he hasn't actually like put it down as being his his getup essentially which i huh. like yeah but i was like oh i remember that from discworld yeah i had no idea that that was real it's it's really fun when you see how much research pratchett put into this stuff because some of it is actually very much based in reality and that's that's fascinating mm. we do get a couple of new characters on the ankh pork scene that are going to become fixtures as well we okay. get constable visit Oh, Constable yeah. visit the infidels with explanatory pamphlets, who is an Omnian. I mean, I didn't like his proselytizing, um, but I think that's slightly the point. And I, I, I enjoy that Dorfel is the only one who ta- who takes his pamphlets and wants more of them. Yeah, but like, there's something of Vime, like where he's talking to Vimes, and then Vimes is like, "Okay, can I have it without the judgment, please?" Like, 
Yeah. Or like, he's like, don't you worry about the fate of your eternal soul? And Vimes is like, sometimes I don't think I have one. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, Omnia has obviously become more aligned with evangelical Christianity than it had been before when we saw it in small gods so yeah. it's been interesting to see the evolution of that religion well how far time. back because small gods is one of the ancient civilizations book right along with pyramids yes so like how far back is that because it's like you know it feels like it, the shift from like crusader era christianity to you know evangelical christian christianity and like the church of latter-day saints in america but, like, there is a significant period of time in between them, but we don't really know when Small Gods takes place. I mean, Bratha does live 100 years. Yeah. So, a while ago. That's that's probably the best I have. I think there's a lot of argument in the Discworld community about exactly when Small Gods takes place in the timeline, but it does seem like it was a while ago um, that Omnian religion has evolved quite a bit. Yeah, actually, a thing that I remembered just with time and stuff. I know when we when you were talking about like the time monks in in uh, Small Gods. Yes. I realized I was like, oh, this is a bit of time fuckery. Completely forgetting the fact that there's a time loop happening in Jelly Baby. Yes. We also get two other names that will come up again. We get Mister Slant, who is the zombie lawyer to the guilds. This is a new character that appears in the guild room and who presents this plan to replace Ventnari with Nobby as king. He is a person that will pop up again. And we also get a reference to a figure in history, General Tacticus, who is going to be an important figure in uh, the next watchbook, Jingo. He is someone who was a famous general of Ankh-Morpork. And as was explained in Feet of Clay, Genua set off for a uh, a ruler. They gave him General Tacticus as their ruler, and he deci- the first thing he decided to do upon becoming king of Genua was to attack Ankh-Morpork. So there's there there's quite a, a bit of history going on with that character as well that we'll be digging into. Um, let's see. Before we get into the end, Nigel, do you have a Nigel quotes the Mountain Goats reference for us? I do. Uh, I was trying to look for a place to like organically put this in, but it's a very specific one because I thought when I started reading this book, I thought I would just like bring up the new Mountain Goats song training montage because they have a new album coming out in uh, in August. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, there's basically like never. There's like two default states, which is there's a Mountain Goats album coming out and you're waiting for the Mountain Goats to announce their next album. And there, there's never like <laughs> a long amount of time in between. And so I thought I would just like talk about that one because it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I could probably find a way to like work it in. That's what I was thinking. I was like, there might be something in this that I can connect to training montage. But then there's this really specific thing where they're talking about economics. And I'm going to get like, the actual like the actual context of the scene up um they're talking of yeah they're talking about like the price of golems and stuff and like the work that they're charging where they say 20 pence on a dollar in the meantime thomas had let his beard grow wore an iron helmet if he thought anyone official was around and put up his prices by 20 pence on the dollar um this is just before uh dibuk which is another um which is another thing from from Jewish mythology, uh, the Dibuk box, which is a box that you use to capture spirits, if I remember correctly. Right. 
but there's a there's a song from their album uh, All Eternals deck called A State Sale Sign, um, which just references that. That's that like it's such a fucking like really like just tenuous connection. But like in it, he said pennies on the dollar, everything's gotta go. The things that we can't even give away, I don't want to know. The things no one remembers, they call it silently. I remember when these things were dear to you and me. But, like, that was it. It was just pennies on the dollar was what I connected with. I also... This is what they opened their set with live the last time they came to Dublin back in 2019. And it was really funny because they were playing the song. And then John O'Neill just... Like, he was hopping around uh, on stage with his guitar. And then he went, oh, no, fuck. There's supposed to be a bridge there. Fuck that one up. And then just start the song again. Just started the song over again. I yeah. love it. Uh, that that happened to us with Jenny Lewis. Uh, she played Silver Linings all the way through, and she's like, I didn't like how that went. I'm going to play it again. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Anything else? I'm going to go through my highlights real quick and see if there's nothing springing to mind. I really like Mr. Slant because he falls into that like Saul Goodman-type mold of lawyers. Yes. Yes, he does. That is exactly who who he reminds me of. I was going to say the other only other two things that I really liked was, first of all, Vimes's watch, the imp yes. in the uh, in the little timekeeper who keeps getting things wrong. I, I really enjoyed that. That's some new steampunk magic technology that we're getting. I love the callback to the boots where Vimes switches boots with one of his officers so he can feel the cobbles and know exactly where it where he is in the city. And that's how he does a lot of his thinking. And then Nobby references it later when the aristocrats say, well, he has to follow the law. Where does he get his law? And Nob says, I don't know. He says it comes up through his boots. I all of that was just perfect for me. Mm. Yeah. Like and because we get the description of like he knows what the cobbles feel like, like the individual cobbles, how they've been laid. I like that. Um it also feels slightly Walt Whitman-esque, where he's talking about, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to find me, search the, uh, the the ground beneath your feet, I'm growing there. Like, that's how the sense of self comes up to Whitman, and that's how uh, Vimes finds what, like, defines him, which is his, like, law that he follows, his code. Right. Wait, what was the first thing you said again? Oh, the, oh, the, the, yes, the, the technology, technolo- the imp. Yeah. I really like that they're all imps. Like, that's what they're... Like, yeah, that's like the how cameras. things work. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoy the scenes where he, he's like, please, like, take a memo. And he's like, say memo. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. And then we're like, the imp will come out and say something like, bing bong. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? Some people like it when I say a catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you what time it is in Clatch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh. I appreciate that, like, Vimes' thing is, like, well, what does knowing the time in Clatch do to help my situation right now? He's so, like, focused on what it is. Um, yeah, it's really weird, especially given the, like, Oliver Cromwell... And I don't know whether it's intentional, the old stone face reminding me of all the Ironsides. But especially with the, like, killing a king thing, it seems like it's kind of intentional. This book has another reference to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and it's the same reference that was before with the having to be lucky every day. That's what the IRA said to Margaret Thatcher. Because 
you know, like they oh, tried right. to they tried to assassinate her constantly, which is kind of how the guild is, and that's like that's where the reference happens. Uh, and I mean, like Margaret Thatcher lived unfortunately until two thousand and thirteen when a stroke finished her off. Um, is that okay to say? Does anyone like Margaret Thatcher in this podcast? This is Brit hating. It's the Jubilee. I mean, I think there's so much anti-establishment stuff in this book. I feel like nobody should be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. There is one death sighting in this book. Death does come for Mr. Hopkinson at the beginning, the curator of the Dwarf Military Bread Museum. So he has to convince Mr. Hopkinson that he is dead and that uh, and that that he has to move on. There is also a death of rats sighting because so many rats die from arsenic poisoning in this book because the arsenic's being put into the candles that we do see the death of rats um, show up. They're also being killed by, oh, what is his name? Matt. We mad Arthur. Arthur, who is a Knack Mac Fiegel. I forgot to mention that in our cameos. I don't know if you noticed that, but this is, again, a, car- a, a race that's going to end up in a future book the Tiffany Aching series. So that's something to keep in mind. I didn't make a, the connection that he was one of the, the Nack McFeagle, but I was like, oh, we, like, we free men. And I was like, that's nice. But then I was never like, then I, I, I never, I never pursued that connection. I was just like, there you go. <laughs> He's a Nack McFeagle that made it to Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Yeah, we met Arthur's great. Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun. There are no sort mentions in this book. I'm, and we are out like, of sad. I like I am like ready to hear some sort stuff again, but maybe I don't know. I don't know if we get back to sort or not. I feel I don't really know if we cheated. I get back into sorts. I know. Because the one time we saw sort was like during the Sortian War when it was being sacked. The first footnote happens on page 3. Which is, uh, shortly afterwards, and around the corner, a beggar holding out a hopeful hand for alms was amazed to find himself suddenly richer by a whole $30. Footnote. He subsequently got dead drunk and was shanghaied aboard a merchantman bound for strange and foreign parts, where he met a lot of young ladies who didn't wear many clothes. He eventually died from stepping on a tiger. A good deed goes around the world. So, that was the first footnote. What was your favorite footnote? Hmm, I don't know. I'm having trouble picking. I'm having trouble picking one, because obviously, like, I really enjoy the one about uh, Constable Visit, and, like, how it describes his, um, his, his, his country's approach to evangelism. Constable Visit was an Omnian whose country's traditional approach to evangelism was to put unbelievers to torture in the sword. Things have become a lot more civilized these days, but Omnian still had a strenuous, indefatigable approach to spreading the word and had merely changed the nature of the weapons. Constable Visit spent his days off in spent his days off in company with his co-religionist, smite the unbeliever with cunning arguments, ringing doorbells, and causing people to hide <laughs> behind the furniture everywhere in the city. I like that because it really succinctly captures like Jehovah's Witnesses and the, the Church of Latter day Saints and like cultural like the way culture views them because like they're exercising their right to practice their religion, but no one likes them when they show up at your door. So annoying. So yeah, we don't annoying. We don't really have like an established Church of Latter Day Saints present here presence here in Ireland, but we we have had a few Jeho- Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Yeah, yeah. Both the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses do a lot of proselytizing. I was just in Salt Lake City, which is like the the capital of Mormonism in the U.S. And so, like, that was really interesting mm. to be like, these people are Mormons, these people are not. You yourself have described yourself as a proselytizer. Um, the Pratchett proselytizer was you in high school. The Pratchett proselytizer, yeah. Except for people liked that. <laughs> they all read the books. So You showed up at their house and you were like, do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior, Terry Pratchett? And you just had, like, what's your favorite Discworld book? Thief of Time? Thief of Time. Yeah, I gave that one to a lot of people for their first read, because that's the first one mm. I read. That was your Bible. I did not read them in order. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I read these all out of order, which is why it's interesting to read them this way. Yeah, this and this is also not the order you read them in either. No, that is not the order I read them in either. In fact, I think I read Feet of Clay before... No, no, no I read Men at Arms first, I think, of all the watch books. Interesting. Um, and then I read Guards, Guards, and then Feet of Clay. Yeah, I, I, it was what they had at the library. So I just read them all out of order. I think my favorite footnote is the one about Rogers the Bulls. Mm. So Rogers the Bulls were angry and bewildered, which counts as a basic state of mind for full-grown bulls. Footnote, because of the huge obtrusive mass of his forehead, Rogers the Bulls, plural, view of the universe was from two eyes each with their own non-overlapping hemispherical view of the world. Since there were two separate visions, Rogers has re had reasoned that meant there must be two bulls, bulls not having been bred for much deductive reasoning. Most bulls believe this, which is why they always keep turning their head this way and that when they look at you. They do this because both of them want to see. I loved that footnote. I just thought it was fascinating because I've always thought about like, what would it be like to have like something that made it so your eyes don't like see two different things because a lot of animals have that where their eyes are on different sides of their head. And so they don't, there's no possible way that they could view the world the same way a human would. And it, so it's really interesting to think that that might cause a creature to think they are two separate people or two separate bulls in this case. Especially because like biologically and evolutionarily, that's a, a trait exclusively to like prey animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish we could like do a quantitative psychological study on prey animals because I think that'd be really interesting. Like, if this were, I don't know, if this were a fantasy world where like there were human, like things that were analogous to humans, which had the same characteristics as like prey animals, and you like did a psychological study and got a peer reviewed and shit, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I agree. What's something that made you laugh? What's something? Um, there's a lot of a lot of the banter between uh, Nobs and Colon, Nobby, Nobby Nobs. Um, I don't know why I referred to him as Nobs there exclusively. <laughs> but yeah, it like one of the things I appreciated was that like because they've always kind of been playing second fiddle to Vimes and Carrot, and now they have their own plot line. And we haven't really talked about the fact that, like, Colin was considering retiring and getting back to the ground. Yeah. And then he actually met but, the ground. Yeah, then he met the ground and was like, I don't want to be there. Um, but, it's like, they've finally smelly. gotten their... Yeah. They've finally gotten their buddy cop dynamic. Um, yeah. Which, like, is the correct dynamic. Um, what made me laugh, though, was... When they're talking about, like, they, well, they say, I'm waiting for the quote to load. 
He handed Vimes a rectangle that was nearly all black. Odd, where'd you get it? Er, uh, have you ever heard the story about dead men's eyes, sir? This is a real thing. Did you know this is a thing? They're called, like, op- I don't know, optograms? I did know that this was a thing that people believed, yes. Yeah. Like the last thing they there's saw. A re- yeah, there's a really famous one where someone has done, like, it, it's like that, where it's meant to be, like, the the guillotine coming down, which would be very weird. Like, how would you see the guillotine coming down on you? Like, that's not how people were guillotined. Right. Which you kind of disproves it slightly. I think. Yeah, it was a really chill and relaxed guillotining back in uh, revolutionary yeah. France. It really... <laughs> They were really, really chill about it. Um, they weren't so chill as to let you go, though, however. No, no, you still had to die, but they were going to let you relax while you died. Um, but yeah, uh, have you heard the story about dead men's eyes, sir? Assume I haven't had a literary education, little bottom. Well, they say, who say? They, sir, you know, they. The same people who are the everyone and everyone knows? The people who live in the community? Yes, sir, I suppose so, sir. Vimes waved a hand. Oh, them. Well, go on then. <laughs> that is pretty funny. I, I like that Vimes is like very th- preoccupied with who they is. Yeah, I think like on the one hand, that's that's uh, like, yeah, because all of all of the people in the watch seem to be for the most part, like when we meet them kind of downtrodden and like like you said, they're relegated to the gutter. So when they are saying something, it's usually like making fun of them. Making fun of, like, the people in the watch. You know, like, oh, Sam Vimes is, you know, he's just a drunk or whatever. Like, that kind of thing. Right. But also, I used to do that. Like, I don't know if you have it in America. We say the man says here. Well, as the man says. No, we don't say that. Yeah, we always say they. They say. And I used to always. I was a very, very strange, stupid child. Um... When it would just, when sure they would say, ah, I don't know. I mean, I was I was generally a bit of an idiot. Um, but um, like when my father used to say things like, "Well, as the man says," because here's the thing as well, you can follow it with a phrase like, "Well, as the man says, the grass is green on the other side," for example. But you can also just say, "Well, as the man says." It's like you know what they say. You don't actually have to follow it up with what they say. You can say, "You know what they say." Um, but I used to go, who? Which man? Like, which, which man, man specifically is? Yeah, or the There's Doll Neo ads. Who would... says this. Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> Doll Neo ads would add their, cat- their catchphrase is Wednesday, your Doll Neo day, and child me in front of the TV would say without fail every time, Wednesday, it's Wednesday, because that's when we hit spaghetti. Idiot child. <laughs> but insightful. The thing that made me laugh, and this is like such a little thing, but I just like cackled over it, was when Vimes and Carrot are trying to figure out how Vetinari is being poisoned, and they are like running through it with the imaginary tray and the imaginary dishes, and they're like, like he's having yeah. Carrot pretend to carry the tray, and they're putting all the stuff on it, and the part where Vimes says, "Quick, write this down," and Carrot looks around like wildly trying to find a place to put this imaginary tray down so he can have both hands free to write something. I just laughed so hard, like it was just like a like a comedy routine between the two of them, and like there's they're they're so good together, like comedically, like 
philosophically, I just, I love the two of them together. Anything that, any scene that both of them are in, which they don't get a lot of scenes together, I noticed in this book. But when they do, it's just about perfect. What's something that made you think? There was a lot in this book. Uh, and so I don't want to say too many in case it's like the thing you say. But I mean, like I mentioned before, the thing about the difference between a crown and a watchman's helmet, like, like, and it gets reversed at the end. Even when you take one off, you're still wearing it. What really, I, I don't know. Because it was obviously uh, as well the thing with Cherry, um, where it's like you can be any sex you'd like provided you act male. There's no men and women in the watch, just a bunch of lads. But I think the one I'm going to go with um, is another thing about they. Because it really put me in mind of like, you know, QAnon type shit and like, you know, the January the 6th uprising in the capital and how that like worked in terms of organization where it's like in a way it didn't matter who they were in fact their anonymity was part of the whole business they thought themselves part of the march of history the tide of progress and the wave of the future they were men who felt that the time had come regimes can survive barbarian hordes crazed terrorists and hooded secret societies but they're in real trouble when prosperous and anonymous men sit around a big table and think thoughts like that yeah yeah, there's a lot about class in this book and the idea that like crimes committed by wealthy people or like groupthink in that way aren't really crimes. They're politics, right? It's yeah. assassination, not murder. It's assassination and not murder. But then also like the distinction with it's not murder. Like you don't murder an animal. You put it down. You right. slaughter an animal. So the one that made me think was actually, I mean, like you said, there's so many of them. I had a hard time picking just one, but I like that. I, I guess I should say there's two that I'm going to mention. One is when Angua says Vimes put words in Carrot's head. So like comparing Carrot to a golem that, that Vimes has like given like this information that has changed him. Essentially, I, I yeah. thought that that was really interesting, the way that we change each other. But I also really liked the part where after Dorfel takes Dragon away and Vimes is left alone in the, the Royal College of Heraldry and he's thinking about the ways in which this po the politics of Ongmorpork work and how like Dragon will be let go, but Vetinari will assassinate him later and all of this sort of thing and like how you can't really punish a vampire because they'll just always come back. And that kind of thing. And he says, you know, um, these were dangerous thoughts he knew. They were the kind that crept up on a watchman when the chase was over. And it was just you and him facing each other, facing one another in that breathless little pinch between the crime and the punishment. And maybe a watchman had seen civilization with the skin ripped off one time too many and stopped acting like a watchman and started acting like a normal human being and realized that the click of a crossbow or the sweep of the sword would make the world so clean. And you couldn't think like that, even about vampires, even though they take the lives of other people because little lives don't matter. And what the hell can we take away from them? And you, too, couldn't think like that because they gave you a sword and a badge and that turned you into something else. And that had to mean that there were some thoughts you couldn't think. Only crimes could take place in the darkness. Punishment had to be done in the light. And I just that to me is the distinction between this and propaganda. Because so many things about the cops in the U.S. are done in the darkness, like people turn off their body mm. cams. There's like this whole like thin blue line that you don't cross. Nobody tells on each other. 
Like, you know, cops are basically thugs that take justice, what they think is justice in their own hands, but it's actually like the violent hand of white supremacy. And then this is like what a watch should be, right? It should be not that. It shouldn't be thuggish, right? He's saying you can't think like that and actually do this job. Like if you do, then you're not a watchman anymore. And, you know, only crimes happen in the darkness. Punishment has to happen in the light. I thought that was really thought provoking. Yeah. And especially because, like, you think about the stigma that people like whistleblowers or whatever um, face Mm -hmm. from cops when they like expose, you know, like the fact that there's systemic injustice or bribery or corruption or, you know, something like them turning off their body cams, like, they're they're like they're doing something where they're they're like actively siding with like justice has to happen in the light and they're treated like shit for it despite the fact that they're doing the correct like yeah and i feel like this book is asking us like what if someone who actually believed that was in charge what if like they actually believed that what they say they believe like what if carrot and vimes were actually in charge of policing so yeah i think that's yeah it was idealistic. Yeah, and this is a really nice, like, counterpoint. Well, not counterpoint, but, like, different argument to be like, I'd like Sam Vimes and uh, and Carrot from um, Discworld to be in charge of the police, as opposed to, like, I want Hermione Granger to be president. Yeah. <laughs> you know those people? Yeah, I do know those people. I don't know if they could reform the police. I'm definitely a defund the police person. I don't think that the police can be fixed. But if you want to talk about, like, what would the alternative be? This is a really idealistic version of that. Yeah. So I I enjoyed that. Oh, no, just, like, in a case like this, like, idealism is all you can really have because, like, I mean, and it's profoundly depressing. Like, there's no way that you could even, like, think about it outside of pure idealism. Like... Yeah. Oh, the what the cops can be good and actually like be on the side of citizens. And that's like a crazy fantasy land thought. Well, that's the, that's the goal of fantasy and speculative fiction and science fiction, right? Is to imagine otherwise to think like, what if it wasn't like this? What if it was different? Right. And of course you can imagine otherwise Hmm. in bad ways and in good ways, but it does give us this opportunity So next episode, we are celebrating Hog's Watch in June with Death and Susan in The Hogfather. Yay. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter at SpicyNigel, where um, I've been been tweeting about. I've been tweeting about the fact I was doing some voice acting. That was fun. Um, I got to play a cannibal, which that's one of my favorite things. One of my favorite things to be, um, like, in terms of roles. Is... The way you said that, it sounded like a cannibal is one of my favorite things to be. <laughs> I mean, look, this podcast, like, all of my podcasts are just records of the, like, the dumb shit I say. So that's one of them. Um, <laughs> where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And on my other podcast that we've mentioned in this episode, Monkey Off My Backlog, you can find that podcast at Monkey Backlog. 
You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. Please send us all of that Discworld art or comments that you have or anything you think about our episodes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. Angua stared at him. It was the stare that Carrot so often attracted. It roamed every feature of his face, looking for the tiniest clue that he was making some kind of joke, some long, deep joke at the expense of everyone else. Every sinew in her body knew that he must be, but there was not a clue, not a twitch to prove it. Yes, she said weakly, still searching his face. I expect it could be a little gold mine. Museums have got to be a whole lot more interesting these days. And, you know, there's a whole gorilla crumpet assortment he hasn't even catalogued, said Carrot. And some early examples of defensive bagels. Gosh, said Angua. Hey, why don't we paint a big sign saying something like, The Dwarf Bread Experience. That probably wouldn't work for dwarves, said Carrot, oblivious to sarcasm. A dwarf bread experience tends to be short. But I can see it certainly caught your imagination. I'll have to go, Angua thought, as they strolled on down the street. Sooner or later, he'll see that it can't really work out. Werewolves and humans, we've both got too much to lose. Sooner or later, I'll have to leave him. But for one day at a time, let it be tomorrow. Want the dresses back? said Cherry behind her. Maybe one or two, said Angua. The End <laughs>